Chapter 13 of A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 13 Creative Evolution. Before the beginning of years, there came to the making of man time, with a gift of tears, grief with a glass that ran, pleasure with pain for leaven, summer with flowers that fell, remembrance fallen from heaven, and madness risen from hell, strength without hands to smite, love that endures for a breath, night the shadow of light, and life the shadow of death the poet Swinburne. If we accept the principle of the Hegelian dialectic, then, apart altogether from any particular worldview or from any arbitrarily developed system, we are able to conceive, and to see why we are able to conceive, reality as activity. We see that matter is, in the first moment of its presentation to consciousness, whatever positive character it may afterwards acquire, essentially negative. We cannot set out from pure negation. Negation in itself affords no foothold, no starting ground from which any process, logical or illogical, can push off. We may indeed conceive the creation of the world from nothing, meaning by nothing non-pre-existing matter and form, if we posit a creator within whom the being and the non-being are synthesized. It is a simple impossibility of thought to conceive God as arising from nothing, or rather to conceive non-being as a distinct and unconditioned moment of God. This seems to me the great truth expressed in the ontological argument. We must start with affirmation, if advance through negation is to be possible. We cannot start from pure not. It is evident, however, that in this we are confronted with a profound problem. We cannot eliminate negation from thought at any moment of the process of thinking, and yet negation can be neither the starting point nor the resting place. Thus we have an antinomy in the very concept of ultimate reality. Reality affirms itself and cannot deny itself, yet also reality can only affirm itself in so far as it negates itself by affirming its opposite. Opposition is in the very nature of the concept, and thought cannot transcend the concept. There is no nothing and creation is fact. Reality is not inert stuff. It is a becoming, the continuous upspringing of what is new, what is unforeseen and unforeseeable. This is a concept of life as creative evolution. Its formulation marks a new and great advance in philosophy. We owe it to our contemporary philosopher Bergson. It brings intelligible unity into the concept of God and the world. The biological problem, the nature and origin of life, is familiar to us in the progressive research of the last half-century. It presents the problem of philosophy in the most concrete form, and at the same time it puts us in possession of the key to its solution. Life, in its strictly biological meaning, is a twofold problem, a problem of nature and a problem of genesis. Every living creature has a material basis of its existence, and this material basis is a simple structural design comparatively easy to comprehend, as compared with the extraordinary complexity of function which it develops. 
any particular individual organism may be traced from its condition in which it appears almost structureless apparently homogeneous and exceedingly minute a speck of stuff we name protoplasm we can follow the stages of its growing complexity and mark what seem to be absolute moments in the emergence of its various functional activities there seems a limit of absolute simplicity in its origin an integration of infinitely complex and diversified functions in its maturity and when its functions end in the state we call death the structure disintegrates but the stuff remains when further we study the material basis itself it seems wholly unaffected by the temporary function or functions which it has subserved this is one aspect of the biological problem there is another every living individual form is the product of an evolution which appears indifferent to the material basis of the organism and only to affect its form and function to this form and function we can assign no material origin the evolution which has determined the mode of any individual activity is definite continuous the moments we may find it convenient to mark off in it as stages in its history are external and arbitrary we can assign no moment as that of its birth or death nor can we understand how it has arisen we can neither induce the living out of the inert nor conceive the conditions under which at any specified moment the evolution of life had an absolute beginning we speak indeed of evolution as a great expansion of life quantitative and qualitative from simple beginnings from the amoeba to man is our expression of this fact but the slightest philosophical reflection convinces us that the concept of an amoeba with the potentiality of a man cannot be the concept of the amoeba as an infinitesimal speck of undifferentiated jelly endowed with active integrative form moreover when we consider life in either of these aspects in its individual form or in its evolution our thinking requires the creation of special concepts for its comprehension the concepts of physics and chemistry being completely irrelevant the fact that they enter into living organisms does not affect in any way the atoms with their positive nuclei and planetary electrons or even the molecules with their stable combinations it is true indeed that the material basis of life seems to be conditioned by the instability of carbon compounds but neither carbon nor any of its compounds is changed in its nature by life it is only affected in its disposition the attempt has indeed been made by those who are fascinated with the idea of mechanistic interpretation to dissect and separate out individual characters and transmitted tendencies to trace their origin in the germ and to assign to each a distinct and definite material possessor the vital elements have been named ids and it has been sought to appropriate each id to an individual material constituent of the germ it was discovered however that even if it were sufficient to assign to each id only a single atom there would not be enough atoms to go round it is in quite another direction that the solution of the problem of life is to be sought with regard to the mechanistic hypotheses of the continuity of inert and living matter we may so far as our present standpoint is concerned content ourselves with the plain fact which no one disputes that the sciences of matter physics and chemistry of themselves offer no interpretation of life and their problems are not in any aspect of them relevant to the problems of the sciences of biology and psychology there is no direct passage from the mathematical and physical sciences to the biological life is a mode of behavior sui generis a living thing behaves in a different mode in every minutest particular and on a different principle 
from any mechanical combination of elements brought together by external agency there is not one single mode of living activity there are many but whatever classification we adopt all are variations of a unique principle this principle is best described by the term consciousness though consciousness in any actual living form may rarely attain the special state of self-consciousness which is the archetype life therefore presents a profound metaphysical problem for consciousness is an immaterial force now we are unable by our very mental constitution to represent or imagine any activity without a material substratum activity conceived as in itself as unsupported in the air as it were detached from anything palpable to sense or expressible in imagery is a pure abstraction lacking the essential quality of reality we speak indeed of spiritual forces of the potency of ideas but we always tacitly imply the material manifestations in which they find expression strength without hands to smite may pass as a beautiful poetical fancy it may even serve an abstract logical analysis of ideas but if we try to translate it into concrete experience it lacks the embodiment which even pure imagination requires for its expression and yet this poetical image expresses literally the life force or mind energy which we know in daily experience and study in the biological and psychological sciences it was the perception that the substance of the mind is not material like the substance of the body which led descartes to distinguish two substances one whose essential attribute was thinking another whose essential attribute was extension a metaphysical problem is presented then in the very fact of life and we may state it briefly and in its broad outline as follows life can only be interpreted by positing a substance which is not material and a cause which is not mechanical the alternatives therefore are one that there are two substances and two causal principles mutually exclusive in their essential attributes and in their modes equally self-subsistent and yet mutually related two that there is one substance and one causal principle essentially simple and that this substance possesses the infinite capability of attaining complexity of form by mechanical disposition and that the highest mode of the activity of this substance differs from the lowliest only in degree three that life or consciousness is the one substance that it is a creative activity that matter is an aspect or view coincident with and dependent on intellect which is a mode of the activity and that intellect and matter are correlative and the product of creative evolution it is the third alternative which is the theory of creative evolution and i propose now to examine its metaphysical ground a material object whatever be the general form of it gaseous liquid or solid is determined as to its particular form at any and at every moment of its existence by the distribution of matter in space at that moment the distribution of matter at any moment and therefore the configuration of an object at such moments is determined externally for the object by the movements of the constituents of the universe previously to and continuously up to that moment space and time are therefore essential formal conditions of the concept of a material object but not in the same degree for while space is intimately part of the concept and mathematically speaking a constant time is both independent and variable space is necessary to the concept of matter time to the concept of movement and both matter and movement are necessary to the concept of a physical object it was this which led descartes to the definition of material substance as extension 
and it gave meaning to the mechanistic theory he expressed in saying give me matter and movement and i will create a world to know how a material object behaves placed in any particular situation we have to know the actual spatial distribution at the moment that and that alone determines it whatever movements are in being at any moment the mechanical object will respond to the external compulsion brought to bear on it and any doubt we may have as to the behavior of such an object is purely due to ignorance of these external conditions in other words the forces which determine it are then present and existent and no forces then non-existent are acting upon it the characteristic mark of the behavior of a living object is the direct opposite at every moment it is determined by forces acting from within and not from without if we knew exhaustively the distribution of matter at a given moment we could not deduce from that the living response so long as an object is living it maintains its form by a force inwardly exerted and inwardly adapted to the external situation but the essential thing is that the force of which it disposes and the behavior which expresses that force are not existent in the universe either within or without the spatial boundaries of the living object this is as true of the lowliest living object plant or protozoan as it is of the most highly organized and specialized creature the springs of its activity which determine the form of its response to external influences lie in the non-existent past and so far as they are present and actual must be referred to an immaterial non-spatial reality a spiritual substance which cannot be discovered by analysis of experience external or internal and cannot be included in any inventory we make of the entities which constitute the spatial universe spiritual substance if we adopt the expression to indicate whatever the reality may be which underlies the nature of living beings is the antithesis of material substance in this that while a material object is wholly determined by its spatial and temporal conditions the living being is neither spatially nor temporally conditioned the activity of life is displayed in space the evolution of life is displayed in time but the concept of life is not dependent on the space and time which condition the display of its activity the spatial and temporal conditions which apply to every particular living creature plant insect man apply to it solely in so far as it is material object and have no reference to the plant nature insect nature human nature of which it is the individual expression in the same way if we consider the metaphysical concept of cause we find that as in the case of substance the principle which we apply to the energetical system of physics will not comprehend nor interpret the processes of life spiritual activity requires the formulation of an energetical principle completely antithetical in its mode to that of physics the most general characteristic of the spiritual principle is integration life is a whole acting as a whole and not the mechanical whole of a composite or aggregate of self-subsisting parts life means that there is more in the present and acting than is comprehended in the physical constituents spatially disposed at that present consider for example such a simple illustration as that afforded by the hardy annuals those seeds we sow in our gardens in the spring the whole energy of any one of these plants is concentrated in and adjusted to and exhausted in the production during the short warm summer season of seeds which will resist the winter cold and await the time of germination in the following spring the most curious and complex and speaking metaphorically ingenious contrivances are brought to subserve this purpose and at every stage of the life process 
we may stop and admire the adaptation of means to ends in the disposition of the material affected by purely physical forces but what mechanical principle of efficient causation will include the non-existent past and the non-existent future which enter as present factors into this living activity physical forces account for the disposition at any moment of the physical constituents but what accounts for the non-existent physical conditions the anticipated winter temperature and succeeding spring warmth and light which determine that present disposition life then transcends matter in the meaning that it brings into play principles which cannot be comprehended within any exhaustive aggregation of physical constituents nevertheless however predominant the spiritual principle in living activity and however antithetical in its nature to the material principle yet we have to admit that life is bound to matter that it is never experienced and cannot be conceived in separation from material existence while on the other hand matter is easily and indeed familiarly conceived and appears to be actually experienced in separation from life regarded from the standpoint of philosophy there can be no reasonable doubt that existentially life and matter are one the materialist affirms it and the idealist cannot consistently deny it idealism is generally associated with the denial of existence to matter and the reduction of matter to a mere mode of mind with this form of subjectivism i am not here concerned from the standpoint of physics and biology and psychology we are bound to admit that life is existentially one with matter and we are not bound to admit the converse it is no doubt for this reason that we find ourselves by nature disposed to accept the hypotheses of materialism that there is a hierarchy in the forms of existence starting with simple stuff simpler we think than any form of object known to us rising continually by an inherent force developing as it grows the immense variety and diversity of the living forms so natural does this seem that the progression from the simple to the complex is proclaimed as the obvious fact of existence and therefore the model to which scientific method should conform the theory of the evolution of life as it has been presented by science in the hypothesis of natural selection and other scientific hypotheses has always been based on the more or less unconscious assumption that it is possible to pass from the simple to the complex from homogeneity to heterogeneity by direct real progression that this accords with an innate logical principle and that therefore there is no inconceivability or irrationality in the thought as there is no improbability in the fact that the living has arisen from the non-living herbert spencer accepted the principle uncritically in philosophy it is admitted that we have not discovered it may even be thought unlikely we shall ever discover the actual links of that progression but no consciousness of essential irrationality disturbs the conviction that it is at least possible indeed overwhelmingly probable that it is fact the theory of creative evolution strikes right athwart this easily accepted presupposition it defends itself by purely scientific arguments arguments based on the facts of biology and psychology but it starts by challenging the rationality of the ordinary scientific assumption life is the primary and original fact matter is the dead product it casts off the concept of matter is reached by way of diminution it is less than life the derivation of life from matter implies the origin of something from nothing an irrational concept just as in the case of the hegelian dialectic the principle is seen with the greatest clearness in the barest category 
so here the principle is most manifest when we compare the notions of inertia and activity given the concept of the inert by what process of thought is it possible to deduce the concept of activity how can an essentially static reality of itself produce in itself movement and change clearly it cannot movement and change must be imposed from without and by the hypothesis there is no without but the converse is not true from activity from change from movement we can deduce the concept of the inert the changeless the static we obtain them not by adding something to the reality but by diminution by arrest by framing by inhibiting by shutting out of consciousness by selecting the product we thus obtain is not simpler and more elementary still less is it the original constituent it is arbitrary and relative such in the theory of creative evolution is matter the metaphysical doctrine on which the theory of creative evolution is based is then that the concept of matter is reached by diminution to speak in allegory matter is the dead shell which life casts off matter is less than life and it cannot be conceived as potentially holding life for that is to conceive it as more than life if the metaphysics implied in the scientific theory is bad the science itself is insecure the bad metaphysics of naturalism is the assumption that the intellect is absolute the intellect is accepted uncritically as being what it directly purports to be the characteristic activity of a mind which contemplates and which in pure contemplation finds revealed to it the nature of an independently existing reality unaffected by any relation in which it stands to the mind aware of it in opposition to this metaphysics the theory of creative evolution affirms that the human intellect is as completely a product of the evolution of life as any mode of conscious or unconscious activity realized in living beings from the lowest to the most exalted in the scale and moreover it discovers that the intellect has not for its purpose the revelation to us of theoretical truth its purpose is consistently with what we may observe throughout the whole range severely practical it serves our activity by restricting our outlook it defines our actions as they are forming themselves it gives efficiency to our actions by confining the human mode of existence to a particular circumscribed range of activity intellect and matter are correlative generated by one and the same force creative evolution intellect imposes on life the static form of matter and life assumes to intellect the aspect of fixity before i try to show the support this philosophical theory derives from science and the light it throws on scientific problems let me try and put in clear and unmistakable terms the metaphysical issue the theory of naturalism is that objective reality rests on a concept of things in themselves it postulates beneath the phenomenal form which the object may assume to any conscious apprehension of it a real object indifferent to the relation in which it stands to the mind knowing it it is a postulate which seems called for and justified as the only alternative to a self-stultifying subjectivism this thing in itself is taken as the basis of objectivity and as the underlying unity of which all the various and diverse modes of apprehension may exist for example a man an ox a hawk a beetle may be together in a particular environment each will apprehend in a different manner and with a different interest but it is from one absolute indifferent objective universe that each will select 
The direct converse of this is the theory of monads. It rejects the postulate that there is or can be an absolute system of reference, an objective universe as thing in itself. It rejects the postulate not merely because it is otiose, but because it is irrational. What, then, is the converse metaphysical concept of the absolute? It starts from the indissoluble unity of subject and object, of knower and known. Its absolute, therefore, is the individual subject of experience. How, then, does it avoid the impasse of solipsism? Individuals are mutually exclusive. If objects are inseparably united to subjects, there can be no transcending the individual. The individual will comprehend all existence. The answer is that no individual living being is circumscribed in its nature by the limits of its existence, nor confined within the time and space boundaries of the actual exercise of its activity. Each individual, when we compare his life with his nature, is but the bud of a tree, part and manifestation and representative of a larger whole. Each species is likewise part and expression of an activity of life. In the finite individual, we do not see the whole individuality. It transcends itself in activity as a whole. It becomes the concept of life or mind. What advantage, then, do we claim for this metaphysical concept over that of naturalism? In the first place, we do not postulate reality. We indicate it. The reality we indicate transcends the limitations of our finite individuality, but it does not and cannot transcend the nature of which an individual is the expression. There is no gulf between the attributes we know and the substance we infer, no breach between the effect and its cause, which the mind is called on to overleap by an act of faith. No material is appealed to in order to account for the naturally inexplicable correspondence of truth and reality. The concept gives us the reality directly in the living experience and does not pose it as a problem of what may lie beneath and beyond. In the second place, it gives us a principle which is really interpretive. The science of naturalism has no interpretive principle. It is reduced to descriptions and to hypotheses based on observed sequences, tentatively put forward as laws of nature, and, guided by utility, erected into more or less arbitrary systems. Science prides itself on its pure empirical method. To criticize this method is not to depreciate it, but only to point out how limited and narrow its success is, and how useless and indifferent to its progress is the metaphysical principle to which it appeals. The metaphysical principle of creative evolution, on the other hand, anticipates with its interpretation the problems which for common sense and physical science are insoluble. If we accept it, there is, then, no mystery in intersubjective intercourse, in the knowledge of other minds, in the continuity of consciousness, simply insoluble on the empirical principle. There are problems, no doubt, but their direction is reversed. Consciousness is no longer a problem, because life is the concept of a reality which is conscious in its own right, but unconsciousness is now the problem. How and to what end has unconsciousness been brought about? How does unconsciousness serve the progress of evolution? The task of science is still weighted with problems, but at least it is not rendered a priori impossible from the outset. Let me now try and illustrate the principle itself. Let us suppose that we are walking along the cliffs of some rocky coast and reflecting on the various forms of life which have adapted themselves to the environment. Any other scene may give rise to similar reflections, 
but along the fringe which divides or unites land and ocean we meet with a more striking diversity in the range of living action than anywhere else here at our feet or below us within a very narrow range are forms of plant life adapted to most precarious and capricious conditions of wind-swept water-sprayed rocks below in the tidal area are zones of vegetation each conditioned by the exact proportion and variation of the bi-diurnal ebb and flow of the salt water here also are zones of animal life determined by the conditions of the plant life or by the degree of the salinity of the water or the range of constant pressure or density and outside or above these land and water conditions are the ranges of bird activity the life conditions of the gulls cormorants terns with sandpipers jackdaws and it may be if the place is wild ravens and falcons on the shore or cliffs the whole is a harmony in the broad sense of the word which would include the preying and also the parasitism of one species on another and there is maintained a more or less stable equilibrium watch then the behavior of any of these creatures here for example are the cormorants sitting motionless on the outer rocks or flying low in a straight line over the sea beyond the rocks exposed at low tide why have they no curiosity why are they undisturbed and unconcerned when the gulls surrounding them are excited or circling around in noisy flocks senseless questions you say true but not from our human standpoint not if they share with us some degree of conscious awareness of a reality independent of and external to us they are creatures of high organization with a perfectly adapted capacity of integrative purposive action we can only understand their nature at all by supposing some identity between their mentality and our own why then are they so entirely lacking in the curiosity which we feel would be potent in us were we placed in their circumstances they evince no sort of interest in the motives which actuate creatures outwardly resembling them in their activity and inwardly resembling them in the type of their organization as we watch those cormorants motionless on their rocks amidst a changing world of infinitely varied interest which by their organization they are capable of entering but which their nature has inhibited them from entering holding them fixed to the narrow range of the actions in which alone their interest is vital it seems to us that they must be circumscribed by their nature itself to the fulfillment of the bare material needs of their existence the fundamental difference between our mentality and theirs seems to be in the power we have of detaching our minds from utilitarian needs it seems as though even in the most exalted of creatures in the scale of life below the human the mind is fixed in attention to the immediate needs of life and that in man intellect has set the animal free from attention to purely animal needs and transported it into a world of purely speculative interests because of this we reason that there must be a world of absolute value and infinite resource over which conscious beings have a certain power of apprehension and accommodating action and that man possesses this power or has acquired it in a superlative degree the theory of creative evolution recognizes an essential difference in kind between instinct and intelligence and a difference in degree in the perfection of each mode of mental activity but it declares intelligence to be in every respect as much a product of evolution as instinct it declares that man with all the difference of degree in the range of his activity is yet as narrowly circumscribed and as fixed in his attitude of attention to life as the lowliest living species animal or plant despite the range of our activity 
in all that is essential to it and so far as the evolution of life is concerned there is absolutely no difference between the case of the cormorant on the rock indifferent to what does not concern its life and man the same evolution the same direction and purpose of evolution which has produced the mind of the cormorant has produced the mind of man we cannot understand intellect if we assume it to be a power of direct discernment and also assume the object of the discernment to exist independently of the mode we can only understand our human nature when we realize that the aspect of the world to the mind and the mode of the activity of the mind in the world are not two independent things but one active living process which in its realization creates two factors necessarily opposed and strictly correlative can we doubt this in the case of the cormorant the aspect of the world to the cormorant is clearly as essential a part of its evolution as the mode of its responsive activity if not then how can evolution be appealed to for any interpretation evolution can only mean that in some inexplicable way some small degree of conscious awareness arises at certain stages of complex organization and increases with the mechanical equally inexplicable growth of the complexity if awareness be contemplative discernment there is nothing in its concept which restricts it yet we are to suppose that only in the human intellect is it unrestricted how far will such a theory take us how far is it even a credible hypothesis when we face the problem of evolution is there not then it will be asked an objective world or at least some objective basis in reality common to cormorant and man and is not the difference in their mentality solely concerned with their relation to this world if this means what it implies that something abstracted from the experience of the cormorant and man may be identical in the experience of each then the answer of creative evolution is a distinct an unqualified negative the nature of the reality of any living individual creature precludes the possibility of dividing its experience into independent self-subsistent factors what is identical in cormorant and man is not anything abstracted from their experience but the life of which each is the expression the theory of creative evolution is that there is no difference in the life which is finding complete expression in every individual the difference is in the form and mode in which it is realized in action evolution has created in man the range and sphere of his activity the mode of the exercise of his activity and the form which actions take concordantly with range and mode it has created the cormorant concomitantly the range of activity the mode of activity and the concordant form of action in each case the objective aspect of reality and the subjective control of reality are the creation of the evolution of life compared with one another man may be on an altogether higher plane than the cormorant and may express a more perfect achievement he may belong to a higher type possessed of greater efficiency and this higher type and greater efficiency may be directly due to man's intellect but intellect and the world it apprehends are not independent factors which may be separated from human nature they are the factors which constitute it and they exist only in and for it man is no more free than the cormorant if being free mean being unrestricted to the mode and range of activity which the evolution of human nature has created were it possible for man to view this human mode from a non-human standpoint it would doubtless be its narrowness not its breadth its bondage not its liberty which would characterize it just as these are the characters which impress us in the cormorant when from our standpoint we survey its activity what then is this world of objective reality which i regard and by my nature am formed to regard as existing in itself and independently of my life and particular mode of living activity it is clear that i apprehend it in two quite distinct ways 
first immediately in my percepts second reflectively in my concepts let us ignore the philosophical problem of knowledge and consider only the nature of this reality apprehended by sense and understanding it is essentially a spatial and a static reality yet the only reality which we actually know intimately know in the very act of knowing know in the mental activity we exercise is essentially a time reality a flowing or continuous change the ceaseless moving on in time of something which is not of a spatial nature at all has no extension but is a tendency or striving or direction the external world which we suppose is revealed to our mind in knowing is therefore in its nature in striking contrast and direct opposition to the reality we most certainly know yet there is in regard to our knowledge of this external world one very significant fact notwithstanding that its static and spatial character presents itself to us as fundamental yet the more deeply we study nature the more its static and spatial character dissolves and disappears in physics for example it is now accepted that mass is a function of velocity and generally that the solidity of objects is never absolute but always relative to the power of the subject to discern and discriminate it simply marks the pro tempore limit of discernment and discrimination it becomes evident therefore even to common sense and scientific investigation that the aspect of our world is purely relative to our power of influencing it we view the world as spatial and static because in that way alone are our actions shaped the world we apprehend however whether or no its spatial and static characters be its external aspect and not its inherent nature is yet apprehended by us not as continuous but as discrete it consists of objects mutually excluding one another it is difficult to suppose that this division of the world into juxtaposed separate things belongs only to its aspect and is not due to a real articulation inherent in nature here again let us ignore the philosophical problem of the association of sense qualities and consider the question purely from its common sense and scientific aspect at once we are struck by a significant fact when we study the behavior of other forms of conscious activity of the various species of mammals birds reptiles fish insects worms and protozoans it is quite inconceivable that their objective world can be articulated along the same lines or following the same principle as ours by what right then do we affirm that ours is absolute and every other relative clearly we have no right what then determines for them the shapes of objects the outlines and definitions of separate things the lines of natural articulation surely it is no other than the actions themselves which the living creatures are severally fitted to perform can our case be different directly we apply this principle a new meaning and a new interpretation of the activities of perception and memory come into view perception is preparatory to action and memory in conditioning perception serves action what then are the objects we perceive plainly they cannot be things in themselves such things would have no relation to our actions nor to our activity the outlines of the objects we perceive are the lines along which we are fitted by our mental constitution to exercise our peculiar influence our world is articulated to conform to our mode of activity and our mode of activity is designed to take form in actions there are no things there are only actions and actions actual or virtual take the form of things by reason of the spatializing fixing activity of the intellect if there be nothing absolute in our objective universe it follows that the absolute is within us it is not within however in any abstract meaning of the term 
any meaning which would isolate the subject of experience from its object the absolute is the life of which every individual of every species including and not excluding his world is the product of creative evolution there is then a real articulation there are lines of division which are not aspects this real articulation is the plurality of the monads also there is a pre-established harmony of the monads if we impart to this old term the new meaning creative evolution has no need to posit a creator god because creation is seen to be the essential character of life by pre-established harmony we do not mean that to an infinite mind all the possibilities of non-existent universes were present in idea and that the infinite mind having perfect knowledge and infinite power brought into existence the best of all possible worlds to suppose this is simply to create god in the image of his own intellectual creature we cannot if we would and no metaphysical need requires that we should transcend the reality in which we live and move and have our being the reality of life which is a creative evolution the harmony is not imposed upon us by the fiat of an intelligent creator it is the a priori synthesis which is the condition of the possibility of experience let me now recapitulate briefly the theory i have tried to expound in this chapter creative evolution is the theory that the subjective modes of living activity vegetative instinctive intelligent and the objective aspects of the sphere of living activity have been created concomitantly by the evolution of life in particular as applied to human nature the theory is that the human intellect and the material aspect of man's universe are correlative and have been generated pari passu there are two metaphysical assumptions generally accepted by common sense and in physical science regarded as self-evident the first is that matter is absolute without implying any theory as to its nature and genesis its existence is held to be independent of life which is conditioned by it and of mind which contemplates it the second is that the intellect is absolute whatever activity the intellect may exercise it is conceived as prima facie a passive contemplation of reality the world is revealed to it and ideally represented by it in perception the first assumption is irrational even if matter be conceived as uncreated yet the idea of a progression from simple to complex from homogeneity to heterogeneity from the inert to the living involves the notion of the creation of something from nothing and this contradicts the principle of sufficient reason to which it appeals on the other hand if we posit god as the first cause the argument is simply circular for we find nothing in the concept of god except what we have put there in order to account for the existence of matter if on the other hand we argue from the idea of god to his existence then we destroy the whole force of the reasoning if we separate god from the world or suppose a creator existing independently of creation the alternative is to conceive the absolute reality as active life this is to conceive a god who cannot not exist a reality in whom we live and move and have our being affirmed in the thinking which thinks it this reality is life conceived not as adjective but as active substance from life we can deduce matter because matter is a diminution of life also matter can take the aspect of a reality independent of life because we can take abstract and partial views of our activity from the standpoint of the acting center of activity every living individual creature has as counterpart of its subjective mode of behavior a corresponding objective universe represented in its perceptions by the relation of these factors actions are determined both the mode of subjective activity and the aspect of the objectivity of the universe are created by the evolution of life in man this subjective mode is the intellect the objective aspect of the universe 
matter the objects of intelligent activity are spatial and static both mode and aspect are generated pari passu by creative evolution the absolute lives for life is the absolute the basis of existence is process reality to every observer assumes a twofold aspect activity and action spatial objects or separate things are the articulation of reality which is relative to its intellectual apprehension the real plurality is that of the monads each the active centre of the one universal principle end of chapter thirteen recorded by olivia